Welcome back to the Chartwell Chronicles. I'm Colin Davis. I am Brittany Atkinson. On this month's podcast, we're going to discuss total temporary disability benefits, including how we calculate the benefits, when they start, as well as a variety of other issues that pertain to this specific benefit. And just a reminder, Chartwell is more than just workers' compensation, insurance, defense. We have 30 different state admissions and 24 office locations, um, which you can easily find on our website at chartwelllaw.com. Temporary disability is one of the three benefits a petitioner is entitled to receive when they, when they have a work accident in New Jersey. We have previously discussed the other two, medi- the two types, medical benefits and settlements. A petitioner is entitled to temporary disability benefits when they have a work accident and the authorized treating doctor has placed them out of work. On the seventh consecutive day out of work, petitioner becomes entitled to temporary disability. Their rate is determined by uh, figuring out the average weekly wage and then multiplying that by 70%, which determines the temporary disability rate. So when we say, and I think we should just shorten it for the purpose of the podcast um, and kind of what we do when we practice, we call it TTD benefits, or sometimes you'll see it called temp benefits. Um, So for the purposes of today, um, I'm just going to talk about, I'm going to call it TTD benefits. So once a petitioner is entitled to TTD, it is to be paid until petitioner is released to work um, full duty, or in some situations, um, the petitioner might be released to light duty work. And if those light duty um, accommodations can be met by the employer, then the petitioner is obligated to return to work um, and then temporary disability benefits can actually terminate. And we'll discuss that more um, in detail as we go on today. Something that is different than other states is that um, another way to end uh, TT name is if they are released at maximum medical improvement, MMI. And pursuant to the case law, we have no obligation to actually get petitioners back to work. And I get this question all the time from adjusters who are not familiar with New Jersey. Other states require that the petitioners be returned to full duty work in order to stop the indemnity wage loss benefits. But in New Jersey, if you get that MMI opinion or that report um, and they still have not been returned to full duty work, you can still stop TTD benefits. Any work restrictions now become a part of determining um, the extent of permanent disability. And we'll get more into this um, greater as we go on throughout the day. There are minimum and maximum rates um, at which TTD is paid each year. These are updated annually um, and can be found on the chart um, through the through the um, the division's website. But basically, a petitioner is entitled to the maximum rate of seventy percent of their average weekly wage. Um, the average, if the average weekly wage <laughs> exceeds that number, then they're entitled to um, to to that maximum number. Um, and the same thing for minimum numbers. So they are entitled to the minimum rate if seventy percent of their average week- weekly wage is less than the minimum number for that year. So sometimes they will actually get more on TCD benefits than if they return to work. And to determine petitioner's average weekly wage, we typically need the wage statement. We hope for a 26-week wage statement because that encompasses about six months of petitioner's work so we get a good idea of their average weekly wage. But a lot of the times you'll see, and almost it seems like almost every time, many times, that uh, the 26-week wage statement is not necessarily complete because petitioners have accidents before they've worked for six consecutive weeks. Then you have the problem that sometimes petitioners are hurt within a few days of starting a job. 
where we do not have a, a complete wage statement. In that case, what we would do is we would find out from the uh, carrier and the employer the rate at which petitioner was hired for, meaning the hourly rate that they were hired for, say $15 an hour, and the hours at which they were hired to work, so $25 an, 25 hours a week at $15 an hour. And we would multiply those two to determine the average weekly wage in that case. You know what's really funny, Colin? Um, and I, I actually did some research on this a couple of years ago, and I was surprised. The statute actually says that you should use their um, the rate that they were hired to work at and multiply that by you know the earnings they were supposed to um, you know receive, rather than use the twenty six week wage statement. Um, and it's funny because we've sort of accust we're accustomed to you know requesting this twenty six week wage statement to calculate the average weekly wage, and a lot of times it does yield sort of a very similar or even the same um, average weekly wage. But there's times when it doesn't. So when you are sort of challenged on um, you know average weekly wage by you know the opposing attorney, sometimes it's necessary to actually go back and look at you know what they were hired to work, the amount of hours. Um, and multiply that by the um, the rate that they were hired to work. Do you agree with that? Do you ever get that uh, argument? I, I do. And a lot of the times that happens if petitioner, like I said, we mentioned the 26-week wage statement, where if someone's worked the same job for six months, a year, it's really easy because you just go down that wage statement and the numbers are pretty much consistently. I know a lot of the cases we have of our hourly employers, so some hourly employees, so some weeks they might have a couple more dollars here and there, but overall it comes to a clean average. When I see that issue a lot is when petitioner alleges to his attorney, well, I was hired for 40 hours a week at $17 an hour. And then we talk to our insured and they're like, no, we hired at $15 a week or $15 an hour for 25 hours a week. And the job doesn't have more than 25 hours, so I'm not sure where he's getting uh, 40 from. And that's where that discrepancy comes in. And it, that can be frustrating because it's it's not always that uh, petitioners are given uh, specific hiring letters. So counsel can challenge that a little more in depth than they would if we had an actual employment letter saying they were hired for a certain rate. And I would say on average, I mean, I probably do not get challenged 75% of the time on, you know, an average weekly wage number. Typically, counsel will, you know, just go with the number that we come up with. Um, but sometimes they will, you know, request the 26-week wage statement. And there's perhaps a week during that 26 weeks where they didn't work or they only worked a few hours. Um, and they will sort of challenge it and say like this week needs to be taken out. And then maybe we divide it by 25 weeks rather than 26 weeks. So it's sort of really up for argument. It's not just this, you know, concrete rule that we ask for 26 weeks, um, and that we use all of these weeks to determine the average weekly wage. It's kind of, um, it's, I don't know, sort of, um, sort of up for debate sometimes. Um, so, you know, you might get that challenge. You're right. It, it's it's something that seems very clean cut on paper because the standard the standard thing we ask for when you get a case into the adjusters is, hey, can we get a 26 week wage statement so we can determine the wages? And nine times out of 10, case goes on, temps paid, there's no issue. But there is that few times where petitioner is is uh, hurt really early into a job and or as you mentioned, they, they work two two solid weeks have three weeks where there's very limited pay and we don't exactly know why. And then they have a bunch of other weeks that are the same as the first two weeks. 
And counsel a lot of times try to omit those three weeks. And I take the position petitioner is an is 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 an at will employee. We're taking them at the the weeks they work. Those are the hours they work. So that's what we should divide it by. It's not we're not a wage loss state. So it's the hours they work times the uh, weeks they are divided by the weeks they work. I agree. I usually take that position too. Um, what about when they are working two jobs? And now they want to take the position that their average weekly wage should be based on them being out of work for both jobs and not just the job that they were injured at. So now we have this insured. It's a compensable injury. They're injured while working for our insured, but they were also working for another company. And now because they're out of work for our company, they're not out of work for the other company. In what situation would you... Um, well, I guess my first question for you, Colin, is have you ever gotten that argument? That, that So that happens a lot of the times with part-time people who have full-time jobs and then also happen to have a part-time job, and they get hurt at their part-time job. And usually the full-time and the part-time jobs have are similar um, type of jobs. They're so, like a delivery company, maybe landscaping uh, or uh, something along those lines where you could work two jobs. But sometimes you have someone who works a regular desk job 48 hours a week, makes a really good salary, but they also happen to have a uh, side job where they work at a couple hours a week and their temp and their rate would be incredibly low. They'd be at the minimum rate and they're, uh, they're out of work. I will see a lot of, t- that's when I see petitioners council try to argue that they should get the rate of their 40 hour a week job as opposed to their 15 hour a week part-time job. And I can't confidently say off the top of my head, I've seen that being successful um, for the full rate, but usually the judges will step in in my 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 uh, times with it and come to a compromised rate or we finagle it so it works for both sides. So while we, we concede a little bit to pay more, we don't have to pay that full rate. I agree with that. And it the part-time job does get uh, uh, make things interesting too, which we'll touch on in a little bit when we, when we talk about accommodating, because you might not be able to be accommodated on your part-time job, but you could work your full-time job because it's a a lesser, a less strenuous job. That's definitely something we have to get into later. um, Partial temporary disability benefits. And when we talk about accommodating light duty work, we should definitely touch on that because that's, that's an important um, issue. And there's some, there's some, you know, relevant case law out there that not everybody really knows about that sort of controls the issue. Right. And I, I know we had been, you had mentioned earlier, the, the mins and the maxes of temp where you're entitled to that. And we'll use the 2022 rates to keep this simple. So in 2022, the maximum TTD rate is $1,065, which means you're entitled to the max rate of temp. If your average weekly wage exceeds $1,521 and 43 cents. Because anything over that number times 0.7, which is how we determine the rate, exceeds $1,065. The minimum rate for 2022 is 284. And you're entitled to the minimum rate if your average weekly wage is less than $405.71 a week, because anything less than that multiplied by 0.7 is under the minimum rate. So a lot of times, this, this you see more often than the max rate, I, I find, at least in my experiences, because uh, it'll be close. And so pe- petitioners will actually make more money on temp than they do in their regular job. 
And that can cause some issues too when petitioner is at MMI or goes back to work because they know they can get more money and they try to keep themselves out of work longer sometimes. What, what do you see that? Yeah, I sort of see that with like malingering. And I get the question all the time from, you know, a lot of adjusters who just start New Jersey and, you know, they're sort of very surprised that, you know, hey, their average weekly wage is $100. Why am I paying them the minimum $284? Um, and, you know, the reason is it's statutory. It's sort of written in the law and we're never going to win on an argument to pay them less money. Right. And then, as I had mentioned previously, the other the other way, in the standard way, is the 26 week wage statement. So you you would take say just say the petitioner's average weekly wage was $800. We'd multiply that by 0.7, and that gets us the compensation rate of $560. So that's the rate. If you make $800 and your average weekly wage, you would be entitled to temporary disability at the rate of $560 an hour, or $560 a week. Sorry. Yeah. So let's talk about um, when to pay out TTD benefits. Um, and we sort of touched on this a little bit already, but um, the injured worker has to be out of work for seven consecutive days. Um, does that include weekends? Does that include Monday through Friday? And I think that all really depends on what type of job that you have. Um, if you have a job where you are working on Saturdays and Sundays, you're working weekends, or you know perhaps you have a job where you're working, um, you know, Wednesday through Saturday, we see a lot of, you know, warehouse workers that work, you know, the night shift through those um, particular schedules. Um, so, but it has to be seven consecutive days that you're held out of work. Once you hit that seventh day, seventh day, you are entitled to temporary disability benefits retroactive to the first day that you're taken out of work. Um, if you are released to light duty work, and again, we already touched on this a little bit, but if you are released to light duty work, and your employer can accommodate your light duty work restrictions, you can terminate temporary disability benefits. Now, when I say you can, they can accommodate the work restrictions, the burden is on the employer, it's on us to prove that the petitioner was offered a light duty job within those restrictions. So I always, and I will harp on this until I'm you know, red in the face, send a letter out, send it certified, return, um, uh, return receipt, make sure they sign for that letter because, and you get the green card back because we will have to prove if there is a dispute that they were offered a job within their light duty restrictions. If they choose not to return to work, um, they are not entitled, they are still not entitled to temporary disability benefits. And I, I completely agree that the return to work letter is huge because uh, a lot of the times it takes a little while uh, to get the doctor's notes anyway from the doctor. So we, we end up paying temp a little bit longer than we want to sometimes anyway by a week or two. And then we get that doctor's report, report saying MMI or light duty. As soon as we get that, if we can find, if it's, if it's released to full duty, get the letter out immediately. If it's uh, light duty, say no lifting more than 15 pounds, we want to be able to immediately contact the employer and say, hey, can you guys accommodate this? Because the quicker we can get confirm we accommodate this, the quicker we can get out that return to work letter and get them back, get them back to work and stop paying temp. Now, assuming we get the work, uh, the return to work letter out. So here's an example, Britt. So petitioner was placed at MMI last week or a week and a half ago on September 10th. We got the return to work letter out on September, not, September 15th and petitioner received it today. 
when when do you, when would you say you stop temp in that regard? I think any judge in the division is going to make you pay temp up until they received that letter. And I've actually I've made this argument many of times because um, you know I have you know obviously I'm on the other side so I'm going to argue that temp is due as of or temp can be cut off as of September 10th in that situation because that's when the letter went out. Um, but I I always lose that argument because how were they supposed to know? I also have been in situations where um, if you relay the information to us, we can immediately call opposing counsel um, and say, hey, listen. They, um, the employer can accommodate like to work. I would suggest that the petitioner call their supervisor immediately. So now we've put them on notice. They can, you know, that there's a job available. And now we have a much better argument um, to say, look, temp ended when I made that phone call to counsel saying, listen, there's light duty available. So I don't care when the letter got there. We just need to be able um, to basically establish that we um, you know, that petitioner received this information and that they're aware of it and that they can't, you know, get on the stand later on and say, well, I didn't know that there was this job duty or this job offer available for me. Well, right. And I, I think that uh, it's it's a much easier argument for us to make when petitioners return to full duty, because almost every doctor we have petitioners see these days get the quick note that uh, as counsel always sends over to us with the restrictions. So I, I hate the petitioner's argument when they're like, oh, I was released to full duty, but I didn't know if I could go back to the job. That one bugs me because you know you're released with no restrictions, which means you can go back to your job full duty per the doctor. So you should know immediately to call. But still to protect us, we should definitely find out as quick as possible and call petitioner's attorney and have the carrier or the employer send out a return to work letter saying, hey, we're, your job is back. When are you coming? It's the light duty is when it, it's it's more important because petitioners may find out, oh, I'm on a light duty of no lifting more than 30 pounds. Can my job accommodate? They don't know that. A lot of the times they won't reach out and then we'll wait two, three months and hear from counsel. And they'll be like, well, he's been released to light duty three months ago, but you guys haven't returned him. What's going on? And that's when it causes issues uh, where they say they're owed temp for that three month period. But our position is they've been on light duty since three months ago. And that's that's a tough argument because the best case scenario is that judges typically, at least I've seen, will make us split the temp in that in that scenario. I've, I haven't won it where, oh, you were on light duty and no temp, even though they found out three months later. Yeah, I agree. And so while we're talking about light duty, um, I think we should touch on partial temporary disability benefits. Um, and when I say partial, I talk about um, when someone returns to light duty, they're more likely than not going to be earning the same amount that they were before their injury because they're working in a light duty position, which often means less hours, um, maybe less days a week, um, less time. So they're, you know, they're earning a little bit less than they would have pre-injury. There, surprisingly, um, there is no binding case law on this issue. Um, but at the same time, with that said, there is no judge in the division that wouldn't make respondent pay partial temp. And when I say partial temp, um, paying the difference between what they would earn in TTD benefits and what they are earning on the late duty job. So they're going to make the respondent basically make up the difference so that they're earning at least what they would be earning on temporary disability benefits. Do you agree with that, Colin? Right. And, and I think an easier way to put that is, so you were working a 40-hour job before your injury, 
and then you were placed on light duty, but the job can only accommodate 20 hours of light duty, a lot of the times, so they can't accommodate the light duty equivalent to your pre-injury job. So a lot of the times the judges will say, okay, he was working 40 hours. You can only accommodate 20. So you have to pay the difference of 20 hours. That's typically what happens. I've noticed. I'm not sure if you've been able to win an argument when it's that big of a discrepancy. Well, do you know what's funny? I, I very rarely get challenged on this. I never get, you know, the call saying, well, you owe my guy partial temp because he's only back on light duty and he's not earning as much. It's very rare that I, you know, that this is brought up and becomes an issue. Um, I don't know. Do you find, do you find that, that you're always paying partial temp or, I mean, it's my venues I don't think it comes up as often as it could. And I think it goes back to what I had mentioned earlier. A lot of these jobs aren't 40 hour a week jobs. They're 20 hour, 25 hours. So if you were working 25 hours pre-injury, but we can only accommodate you to 22, no judge is going to say, oh, you owe the three. It's within reason. But like if you're 40 hours and you're only accommodating 20, it's when it's a big discrepancy. But a couple hours, that's why I think we don't see it as often as uh, it on paper, it sounds like you should. Yeah. So let's sort of move into when you cut off TTD benefits. Um, and, you know, we talked about this. Um, you cut off TTD benefits when there's two ways. When the petitioner is returned to full duty work or they reach maximum medical improvement. It doesn't have to be both. It only has to be one of them. You need one of these to cut off temporary disability benefits. And again, if with the light duty restriction exception, if you if the light duty restrictions can be accommodated, you can also cut off temporary disability benefits. So once the um, so once you get that MMI note or that return to work note, you are safe to cut off benefits. You don't have to do anything with the court. You don't have to. Um, I know in a lot of other states, you have to um, you know look for the the court's permission to terminate temporary disability benefits you don't have to do that in new jersey you can just unilaterally terminate temporary disability benefits at that point um, i would suggest and i i always do this um, with all clients w- keep track once you start seeing um you know medical treatment come to a close keep track of your notes because it's very difficult to get reimbursement for an overpayment of temporary disability benefits. What we will typically do when we see an overpayment of temporary disability benefits, we will, um, you know, note the file. And then at the conclusion of the case, try to seek reimbursement for it. There's no, well, I should say this. There's many judges that just won't allow it. And again, any settlement has to be approved by a judge in, in New Jersey. So, it's you can sort of negotiate it within your settlement. But again, if you know, if opposing counsel is challenging you on, you know, getting reimbursement for the overpayment of temp, it's going to be very hard to convince the judge to give it back to you. Right. And the biggest problem with that is, is because it's sent to petitioner, they just think the check is, they're still entitled to it. So they cash it. So the check is gone. If, if we catch it before the check is cashed, and we can cancel a check. That's one thing. But as you alluded to, any judge I've had has never given me, if say we overpay temp by $2,000, they've never given me a dollar for dollar credit back on any settlement. They, the, I think the best I ever did was a 50%, 50% split. But even that is, uh, was, was an uphill battle. There were a lot of extenuating circumstances in that specific instance. But most of the time, you're probably getting it back at about a third of what's overpaid. 
And if it wasn't a significant overpayment, like I, I feel like none of my judges would consider one to two weeks a significant overpayment. So they would just say, you didn't, pay, you, you didn't stop it on time. That's on you. But when you get to a month, two months, that's when they'll, they'll work with you a little more. Yeah. I mean, and it does really add up. And I've actually had uh, situations where um, opposing attorneys will make a claim for temp because the petitioner wasn't aware that they were discharged. They weren't aware that they hit MMI. They weren't aware they returned to full duty work. I mean, I don't know how honest of a, uh, of an argument that is, but I've gotten it several times. And let me tell you something I have lost because you know, there's the judge is looking at it saying, well, how's this person supposed to know that they were to contact their supervisor to return to work when they didn't even know that they were released to return to work. So, and again, you know, you can compromise and negotiate it into a settlement, but you know, the judges are going to sympathize with the petitioners in that regard. Right. And uh, another way there's, there's two other ways to, uh, stop temp or that a petitioner wouldn't uh, be entitled to temp. The first, uh, this one's easy. It doesn't take uh, too much to grasp why it's the same. So uh, if a if a petitioner returns to full-time academic studies, that's considered equivalent to the ability to work and would terminate uh, TTD. And the, the, the New Jersey courts have been pretty clear on that. Now, uh, one credit class you're going to probably have a hard argument. What that case was more uh, related to was a full-time student. So 12 plus credits. And I, I feel we could probably knock it down a little further too, depending on the, the situation, but returning to, to college essentially puts you back at full, uh, takes you back, puts you back in the workforce, I should say. Yeah. We see it a lot with like, um, you know, in the summertime, um, people have summer jobs. Um, and then, you know, after the summer they go back to school, but they've sort of been on this, temporary disability, um, you know, receiving this, these, these wage loss benefits. And it's sort of on us to catch it that they went back to school and, you know, terminate it. And the other one that it's very contentious is a petitioner is not entitled to TTD. If the petitioner voluntarily terminates his employment for reasons not related to the employment while out of the labor market, because temporary, because he's temporarily disabled due to that work injury. So what that essentially means is petitioner was petitioner quit uh, quit his job uh, and then tries to claim he's uh, owed temp because he's still out of work for the injury. How how have you seen your judges handle that? I'm really split on this. Um, I mean, in my I always make the argument. I mean, it goes back to you know one of the most historical cases I think in comp the Cunningham you know. But for their work injury, would they have been working? So if they're fired or they quit um, and they take them, then in my argument is always they take themselves out of the workforce. Um, you know, if they quit, it's obviously voluntary. Um, if they're fired, um, you know, and they did something, you know, for cause. To me, they took themselves out of the workforce. They wouldn't be earning any wages. I think without them proving that they would otherwise be earning wages. I don't think Tempest do. I, I agree. The, the, the quitting is a much cleaner uh, line because they've clearly taken themselves out. The getting fired, getting laid off, that that's tough because a lot of the times, although a lot of these people are at-will employees and they're not being fired related to their work, uh, work accident because they have write-ups, uh, lateness, just not showing up to the job, uh, I've had judges say I should still pay because they 
petitioners council come and say, well, he's going to say he was taking uh, sick days and couldn't show up because even though he's on light duty or full duty, he's still struggling and can't work in within those restrictions, even though the doctor says he's able to. I, I agree. And I, I struggle with the judges on this because to me, it's very clear that, you know, they're not entitled to temporary disability benefits. Um, I do find that when um, they are terminated before being taken out of work, that we have a much stronger position to not pay temp. So they're working, they, you know, they're injured, they go to Concentra, they're you know, maybe doing some physical therapy, they really haven't seen the orthopedist yet. Um, and in the meantime, you know, they're terminated for cause for whatever reasons, um, unrelated to the work injury. Um, and then they go see the orthopedist and then they're, t- and then they're taken out of work. I win the argument in that situation much more easily than I do the one they're fired after being taken out of work. I, I agree that well, for sure it's, it's much easier because you're already out of work and then you're fired. That's a harder thing to sell that. Uh, you're you're unemployed, not related to your work injury when you were already out. You're though the one where it gets tough. I will say though is you're already been you're on you've been on your full duty. You're getting treatment. You're fired. Then down the line you have a shoulder surgery. I've had judges say pay temp there because they're like he would have been out of work anyway uh, because of this. So you just pay it for that period till he's back to light duty. And then you can stop paying. it. I know. And I get that all the time. And to me, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it's not consistent with what the law says. But I agree. I do agree. Here's another example. And I've actually gotten pushback from some other people in our office uh, on this. And cause I, I, I'll tell you my position in a second. So petitioners getting temporary disability, and they go on a two-week vacation of their own. And do you pay temp or do you not pay temp? My position is you do not pay temp because they voluntarily took themselves out of the workforce. They're not missing time for their work injury at that point. They're on vacation. They're, they're missing it for going to Disney World for two weeks. So I don't think you owe temp for that two weeks. I, I would agree with you, except that, and I, I just know that this argument would come up. Oh, well, they're taking their vacation time. You know, maybe they would have been paid for those two weeks. Maybe they saved up that, you know, time off just to take that vacation. Um, you know, why should they not be received temp um, because they're going on a vacation? So, I mean, I, I think that could go either way. I think what you just said there was a crucial part of it. You said vacation time. So if they have days to take, get their vacation days or sick days that they're using, I agree you should pay temp. But if they're just taking it without vacation days or they don't have vacation days, then I think it's a stronger position to say they're out of the workforce. Well, here's another here's another scenario that comes up all the time. The petitioner is not cleared to um, have, an, have you know, an authorized medical procedure um, in connection with the work accident due to unrelated conditions. So, you know, they go for clearance to have, you know, their shoulder surgery and the doctor says, no, nope, you have high blood pressure, you have diabetes, you have to sort of get this under control before um, you can proceed with this medical procedure for your work accident. Do you continue to pay temp while they're trying to get their blood pressure down? I I would say no. I have won that argument saying no. And I've, and I've said to the carrier, let's concede and continue to pay. And it was solely predicated on the way the report was written about the underlying unrelated issue. So I had a lady with a heart issue that the doctor basically said, 
there's zero percent chance she's getting this under control in an in in a reasonable time because she was smoking, drinking, had high blood pressure, where it was going to take her years to get this under control and be, be uh, cleared for the surgery. That case, I was successful saying no temp, but one where all they have to do is get a quick CT scan or an echocardiogram, and they can do it within a week or two. I've seen the judges say, hey, keep paying temp because they're, they're getting through this quickly. That that's I think where the argument lies. How long it takes to get them to cle- to get clearance. I've had um, gosh, I've had cases in the past where it's been years that they weren't able to um, you know proceed with a medical procedure. I just I think that would be you know extremely unreasonable for a judge to make somebody you know make a respondent pay years of temporary disability benefits you know while they got a sort of you know unrelated condition under control. Right. And I, I actually think this flows into another one where we're providing everything we should, authorized treatment and temporary disability. And then petitioners decide to either not show up to exams, not show up to PT or MRIs or erratically attend exams. When do you cut temp or when do you recommend cutting temp or I think your judges see it when they're not complying with treatment? So I always have this rule in my head with, you know, three appointments that that is not supported by the case law. It's just sort of my own um, thing. So two missed appointments, file a motion to dismiss, three missed appointments, um, terminate benefits. Uh, I think that's that's a reasonable amount of time for the petitioner to get back on track with um, once you let them know and let their attorney know to get them back on track um, and without cutting off benefits. But after that third appointment... I mean, you. I can't see any judge making you continue to pay. Well, I have actually been successful, like you said, the motion to dismiss, where it does, where while well, I file the motion to dismiss after the second exam, I don't get a order granting the motion to dismiss, but I will get an order saying if petitioner doesn't attend the next exam, temp is cut and we move to perm because she's just not complying. So while we don't get the full dismissal, we at least get it cut off hard. We have a hard date and. And then um, I've also been successful, too, where it's okay. she's missed two exams. She attends the third one, but I'm not going to pay till she attends the fourth one and we'll pay retro from the third temp forward just to cover us. And a lot of times counsel will agree with that, too, because they're like, look, she missed two or three exams. Let's just make sure she stays consistently attending. And and if if you have a if it's a decent petitioner counsel, they'll agree to that. But sometimes they'll want it instantly on the day they attend that third exam. Yeah. And I think it all does, you know, it's all very, you know, case specific because I think there's situations, you know, where, and I mean, I don't know how many excuses they can come up with, you know, their car broke down, they didn't have a ride. They don't, you know, they, you know, their mother is sick, something like that. I mean, you know, you're going to sympathize here and there, but to me, missing three exams in a row is, is a bit, um, much. So I sort of, I sort of always make that my cutoff. You're right. And I feel like over the last two years with COVID, especially when COVID was at its peak, judges were not cutting temp, telling you not to cut temp, whether or not you wanted to at all. The other thing is now we're starting to get back to normal flow. They're, they're being a little more, uh, back to what it was pre-COVID. Those were even frustrating too, because a lot of the appointments were being done like virtual. Right. So they couldn't make these virtual appointments. They couldn't, you know, comply with treatment that was basically telehealth and we're being forced to pay temporary disability benefits. Right. And a lot of these scenarios that we just described typically uh, come about um, 
if we don't agree or counsel gets a little uh, trigger happy, they file a motion and we have to make these arguments while it's sitting on a motion, which makes it harder because we've already we're already complying with authorizing treatment and there might have been a slight delay in temp. What do you see? And I get this a lot. Uh, petitioners reserving their rights to retro temp. So they file a motion for a closed period of temp because the statute says you're not entitled to temp unless you're out there actively treating and placed out of work by an authorized doctor. But I'll get a lot of motions where petitioner is hurt in July, out of work till September 1st, and the motion comes due to uh, September 30th, and he's already at MMI back to work, and the, the, they'll reserve their right to retro temp. And a lot of the times the judges are entering orders to pay immediately and not kicking it to the end of the case like they should, I, I, I find. But I don't know about you. Well, I mean, I feel like lately they are. Um, but I'm also getting a lot of uh, orders which say like, okay, respondent agrees to issue a voluntary tender um, fees to abide. Well, if we're agreeing to pay a voluntary tender, why are we going to you know, be stuck with counsel fees at the end of the case? So- right. I never, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting a lot of those orders. So it's, you know, it's, they're just sort of, you know, coming up with, you know, this is the resolution. This is what's going on. I'm like, well, the resolution was respondent agreed to pay a voluntary tender, tender to, uh, you know, settle it. So right. and to, the reason why we would pay a voluntary tender is one where, so typically we'll get a motion petitioner won't have had been paid on paid temp for three to four months is what they're alleging. Well, while we only have 30 days to answer the motion or 21 days to answer the motion, 30 days before it lists, a lot of these judges are calling us much sooner than that uh, these days. So it's easier to say, okay, petitioner may be owed four months attempt. We're willing to pay a voluntary tender, which is about two worth about two months attempt, and we'll figure out the issue that that covers both sides. It gets petitioner money. It gets us back on the judge's good side, even though we were never really on their bad side. And then it gives us us time to say, okay, we didn't actually owe it for four months. We only owed it for three and a half. And this is a compromise. And then they can argue for the rest of the temp at the end as well. That's how I, that's typically when I see used a VT argument. Is there another way you, or is that how you do it? Yeah, that's typically it. And a lot of it comes from, you know, that light duty job. And they're saying, you know, they weren't offered it. They were offered it. Do we owe temp? Do we not owe temp? Um, the VT sort of gives us some time to really investigate it and see, you know, whether a letter actually went out, whether, you know, the petitioner was aware of it, whether, you know, we can get a statement from a supervisor or someone from HR that called out to the petitioner um, to really, you know, give that, you know, offer that job. So it just gives us some time to investigate. I have I have one last uh, example. So this can go twofold. Either we never provided authorized treatment or we provided authorized treatment and petitioners placed at MMI. He then goes and gets unauthorized treatment and is placed out of work. And counsel argues we still owe temp. How, how do you feel about that? So wait, so I think you need to say this again. I'm sorry. Sure. Either we never either he was unauthorized treatment the whole time or we provided treatment to MMI and he's under an unauthorized treatment now. And that doctor says he's out of work. Do you pay temp? Oh, I mean, 
It, that is very case specific. Um, I mean, do you have an MMI opinion from, you know, an orthopedic surgeon or do you have an MMI opinion from, you know, a doctor over at Concentra? I think I think you're really going to need to rely on, you know, how credible your MMI opinion is there and your return to work note is there. Um, that kind of situation, I think, is really going to depend on your judge and also your actual case. Um, but. I mean, I would say no. I would say you reserve the right to get your own exam and to determine what you know with another doctor to see if they're out of work. Right. I I, I agree. I think we have a very strong argument in that sense, but I I do get nervous sometimes when I I see that argument because usually it's it's followed by emotion, mm-hmm. and then and their motion comes with just a hired gun IME and it says oh all sorts of treatment, even though none of that was ever even talked about by the authorized treater. And we have to go to a tie break doctor with most judges. And a lot of times that tie break doctor might not side with us and they place them back out of work and we're paying temp again. And that, that can be frustrating. So it is very case specific, but that, that tends to be what happens. We end up at a tiebreaker and risk having to pay again. Yeah, I really I don't Even like unauthorized treatment. It just it can you know swing out of control so easily. Yeah, unauthorized treatment. A lot of the times you do get the motion and it and it'll get cleared up pretty quickly and we'll get them into authorized treatment. But it gets it does get questionable in that scenario. And I've definitely had people argue that they're entitled to temp with their unauthorized doctors, which I find to be ridiculous. And uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us on our latest episode of the Chartwell Chronicles. We look forward to having you uh, join us for future podcasts. And please subscribe and uh, join us for all future episodes and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get that. And we look forward to seeing you in the future. Thank you.